Please turn in your Bibles this morning to the book of 2 Kings, chapter 6. Second Kings chapter 6, and occasionally we have opportunity to look at the life of Elijah, the prophet, and that's why we're in this passage this morning. I'll read verses 8 through 23. This morning we'll cover verses 8 through 14, and then, Lord willing, this evening, the rest of the passage but I'll read verses 8 through verse 23. Now the king of Aram, or the king of Syria, was warring against Israel, and he counseled with his servants, saying, In such and such a place shall be my camp. And the man of God sent word to the king of Israel, saying, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Arameans or the Syrians are coming down there. And the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God had told him. Thus he warned him, so that he guarded himself there more than once or twice. Now the heart of the king of Aram was enraged over this thing. And he called his servants and said to them, Will you tell me which of us is for the king of Israel? And one of his servants said, No, my lord, O king. But Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, calls or tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. So he said, Go and see where he is, that I may send and take him. And it was told him, saying, Behold, he is in Dothan. Dothan. And he sent horses and chariots and a great army there, and they came by night and surrounded the city. Now when the attendant of the man of God had risen early and gone out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was encircling the city. And his servant said to him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? And he answered, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elijah. And when they, had, when they came down to him, Elijah prayed to the Lord and said, Strike this people with blindness, I pray. So he struck them with blindness according to the word of Elijah. Then Elijah said to them, This is not the way, nor is this the city. Follow me. And I will bring you to the man whom you seek. And he brought them to Samaria. And it came about when, when they had come to Samaria that Elijah said, O Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. So the Lord opened their eyes and they saw. And behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. Then the king of Israel, when he saw them, said to Elijah, My father, shall I kill them? Shall I kill them? And he answered, you shall not kill them. Would you kill those you have taken captive with your sword and with your bow? Set bread and water before them, that they may eat and drink and go to their master. So he prepared a great feast for them, and when they had eaten and drunk, he, set them, he sent them away, 
and they went to their master, and the marauding bands of the Arameans did not come again into the land of Israel. There was no prophet in the land of Israel in the entire history of the Old Testament, with the exception of Moses, who performed more miracles than Elijah. He performed all kinds of miracles, miracles of supernatural, divine power, and they were almost always miracles of great benevolence and kindness of God. They were miracles that were both public and private as well, and in our previous studies in the life of Elijah, we'd seen many of his private miracles that were carried out in secluded and isolated places removed from the public eye. And those miracles were always for the faith and the encouragement of the true people of God at this time in the land of Israel. When the poor widow filled all the vessels with oil to pay off the great debt that she owed, it was done in the privacy of her own home. When Elijah raised the dead son of the Shunammite woman, it took place in the upper room. When he cured the poisonous stew and made the iron axe head to float, those were miracles that were done among the sons of the prophets, and they were removed and they were separated from the public eye. And all of these private miracles of Elijah were done for the faith for the encouragement of the true people of God in the land of Israel at that time. But Elijah was not just sent to encourage the faith of the true people of God. He was also sent to do them good and to protect the entire nation from their enemies. The nation of God or the nation of Israel was God's nation and Israel was the expression of of God's kingdom in the earth at that time. And Elijah was sent to demonstrate that Israel's safety and security depended entirely upon the Lord, upon his power and his will. The only thing that kept Israel from the tyranny of their enemies, the surrounding nations, the only thing was the good pleasure and the mercy of God to them. On these occasions, Elijah would be found in the presence of the kings and he would perform great public miracles on behalf of the entire nation and that's what we find him doing here on this occasion. The power of God is with Elijah and he single-handedly defends the nation of Israel and defeats their enemies. The historical context of Our account here is that for many years there has been war, continuing warfare between the nation of Israel and their northern neighbor who is Aram in our translations and most translations call the nation Syria, the land that we know today as Syria. And the king of Syria, whose name was Ben-Hadad, He was an aggressor, and he was making these numerous attacks upon the nation of Israel. Ben-Hadad was the same king who, 
only several years before, back in 2 Kings chapter 5, had sent Naaman, the captain of his army, down to Israel to be healed of leprosy, as he had heard from his servant girl captured in the land of Israel. And Naaman was cured of his leprosy in a great miracle. And one would have thought that after such an act of kindness to the captain of his army, that his hatred against Israel would be cooled. And one would have thought that after such a miraculous cure of Naaman's leprosy, that he would have realized that Israel was under the special protection of God and he would have laid aside his hostility. But neither goodwill nor the evidence of divine power could deter Ben-Hadad from his evil designs against the people of God, and he continued to make war against the nation of Israel. Whenever we find such warfare in the nation of the, in the Old Testament, the surrounding nations against the nation of Israel, We should not view such things as disconnected, isolated, random historical events, but we should understand them in the larger context of God's plan of salvation and of the spiritual warfare against his kingdom that has been taking place from the very beginning of the world. There has been great warfare, spiritual warfare, taking place in this world ever since the beginning, a warfare in which the seed of the woman, the righteous, and the seed of the serpent, the wicked and unbelieving, there is a conflict between the forces of righteousness and the forces of evil. All the way back in the beginning in the Garden of Eden after the fall into sin, God promised that there would be enmity. He said there will be enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And there would be this continuing and ongoing struggle between the forces of righteousness and the forces of sin in this world. And all the wars that take place in the Old Testament between the nation of Israel and the surrounding pagan nations should be understood in this larger context. And all the opposition of the nations to God's nation Israel is ultimately opposition against God himself. Behind the scenes of it all, there is the serpent, the devil, and his kingdom of darkness And there is war against God's kingdom and his plan of salvation. And this is what lies behind what we see here with the Syrians as they continue their attacks upon the nation of Israel. And this is what lies behind the continuing struggles and the conflicts and the opposition and the persecutions that still go on today against Christians and against Christ's church in this present world. A manifestation of the spiritual kingdom of darkness fighting against the kingdom of light. We read here in verse 8, Now the king of Aram was warring 
against Israel. And he counseled with his servants, saying, In such and such a place shall be my camp. What we have here is a secret war cabinet, a war council, Ben-Hadad. He would gather with his chief advisors, his highest-ranking military officers in this secret meeting, and he would counsel with them as to the most effective way to assault the nation of Israel. And his ultimate desire was to enter the land of Israel, capture the king of Israel, whose name was Jehoram at this time, and with Jehoram captured, killed, the nation of Israel would fall. The Syrian plan was, rather than sending down a massive army in an outright invasion, he would send these small commando forces to attack along the coast and then to go in and find the king of Israel, Jehoram, and put him to death. We see in the middle of verse 23 that there are these called these marauding bands or these bands of Syrian raiders. And these were bands of men that would sail down from Syria in their boats and they would come ashore and make a raid into one of the towns of Israel. They would often kill the Israelites. They would take some of them captive as slaves. They would plunder their property. And here the king of Israel, the king of Syria, in verse 8, he makes this secret plan with his war cabinet over where he will strike. We can imagine them, they are gathered about their table. In their war council, they have the map of the nation of Israel, the map of the coastline. They pick out the specific town where they think they would be most vulnerable they easily and most easily attack, and they make their decision that this will be the place of the attack. And the king would say, in such and such a place I will make my assault, in such and such a place shall be my camp. And the whole strategy was based on surprise. They would strike as quickly as they could. They would take the Israelites captive. They would take them off guard. Ben-Hadad was a very crafty king. And he was relying on his military skill and cunning. And from the human perspective, it was a well-planned military strategy. But then what would happen every time, every time that Ben-Hadad would send his band of soldiers down and arrive at the specified location. They would find the army of Israel already stationed there, and they would already be well fortified and ready for their attack. And when the Syrians saw the soldiers of Israel standing all prepared for them, They would realize there was nothing they could do. Their plan of attack was frustrated and thwarted, and they would have to retreat back to Syria. We find the reason why this happened in verses 9 and 10. Verse 9, the man and the man of God, this is Elisha. And the man of God 
sent word to the king of Israel, saying, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Arameans are coming down there. And the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God had told him. Thus he warned him, so that he guarded himself there more than once or twice. So as soon as Benadad would make his plans in his secret war council, Elijah, the man of God, would know exactly where he was going to strike. And Elijah would immediately inform the king of Israel, Jehoram, And Jehoram would send out his army to guard the place and they would be ready and waiting for the Syrians when they arrived. And what was happening on this occasion was that the God of heaven who is omniscient, he is omnipresent, he is present in every place and so he is omniscient, he knows all things. The God who knows all things was in the secret war council of the Syrians. And he knew every word, every plan of Ben-Hadad and his men. And he would reveal it to his prophet Elijah. And Elijah would know the location. And Elijah would pass it on to the king of Israel. And the king of Israel would send out his army to be ready for the defense. Now, the first time that this happened, Benadad would have thought to himself, well, this was simply good luck for the Israelites. And what they needed to do was to make better plans the next time. But then the second time this happened, perhaps he would have begun to think that this is a strange coincidence, that twice in a row we have sent down our invading band and the Israelites have been standing ready and waiting for them. But this continued time and time again as it says at the end of verse 10. This happened more than just once or twice. It happened on numerous occasions and every time, every time Ben-Hadad would send out his band of raiders, no matter where he sent them along the coast, the Israelites would always be standing ready for them, no matter how clever they were in the choice of their attack. Ben-Hadad became very frustrated. He began to realize that something more than just coincidence was taking place here, and he began to suspect that one of his men in his war council was a traitor And he became enraged. And so he called a special meeting, as we read in verse 11. Now the king of, or now the heart of the king of Aram was enraged over this thing. And he called his servants and said to them, Will you tell me which of us is for the king of Israel? Which of us is the traitor in this room? So this is what he commanded all of them to be gathered together and for him to be told who it is who is constantly telling the king of Israel their plans. One of his counselors knew what was going on and he tells him now in verse 12. And one of his servants said, No, my lord, O king, but Elijah, 
Elijah, the prophet who is in Israel, he tells the kings, the king of Israel, the words that you speak in your bedroom. Elijah was God's prophet in the land of Israel, and Elijah, the power of Elijah, had been now spread wide, and it was known up in Syria, and even in the court of the king of Syria. And this man realizes how all of this has come about. It must be because of the prophet Elijah. And it is a most amazing statement here of God's omniscience, that he tells the king of Syria, no, it is not one of us. It is not one of us who is telling the king of Israel. It is Elijah, the prophet of Israel. And so great are Elijah's powers, O king, that he knows not only what you say in the secret roar council room, But he knows what you say in every place. And he knows what you say even in the privacy of your own bedroom. We learn an important lesson here. And it is that men cannot hide anything. We cannot hide anything from God. When Ben-Hadad and his men were gathered in their war council... They gathered in a secret place, perhaps down in some underground bunker room where no one could come and the doors were bolted shut. They would make every effort to ensure that their plans against Israel were not heard by anyone. And they accomplished it on a human sense. But little did they know that the God of Israel was in that room with them. Because he is not like the false gods of the Syrians who had eyes but could not see and ears but could not hear. The God of heaven is present in every place and he is the God who sees and hears all things. And all that they said in that war council was heard by him, and he knew all their plans, and they could hide nothing from him. We find this great truth throughout the Bible, that the God of heaven is omnipresent in every place. He is present, and he is omniscient. He is the God who sees and knows all things. We'll turn to a passage in Psalm 139 for a moment. Psalm 139. And we'll read verses 1 through 6. And David here says, O Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. Thou dost know when I sit down and when I rise up. Thou dost understand my thought from afar. Thou dost scrutinize my path and my lying down, and art intimately acquainted with all my ways, even before there is a word on my tongue. Behold, O Lord, thou dost know it all. Thou hast enclosed me behind and before, and laid thy hand upon me. 
Such wonderful, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. David here meditates and he considers that God, the God of heaven, has perfect and exhaustive knowledge of everything that he does. He is the God of heaven who looks down from his throne and there he watches all that we do and no matter where we go or what we say or think, he has a a complete and a thorough knowledge of everything that there is to be known about us. When we rise up in the morning and as we go about our daily activities and When we lie down at night, at every moment, in every place, the eye of the Lord is upon us. And he does more than just know us outwardly. But he knows us inwardly. Because David here considers that God knows the thoughts of his mind. And there is nothing more private to us than our own thoughts. Other men can never find, discover the thoughts of our hearts. But David says here that even from the heights of heaven, God looks down and he knows the thoughts of a man's heart. And he understands everything from afar and there is nothing even within us that can be hidden from us. He analyzes us. He examines us. He judges every single thing that takes place in us, whether it is good or whether it is evil. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, even in the thoughts of our hearts that are exposed to him. And he knows evil and good. David uses some remarkable language here of God's omniscience. In verse 3, he says that thou dost scrutinize my path and my lying down. Thou art intimately, intimately acquainted most completely and thoroughly with all of my ways. And so he is our constant companion no matter where we go. And he encloses us behind and before, and he has laid his hand upon us. And when David considers this, great knowledge, infinite knowledge of God, his response is one of praise and adoration, as he says in verse 6. He says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. It is above me. I cannot even begin to attain to all the infinite knowledge that God has of me. Then he says in verses 7 through 10, he says, Where can I go from thy spirit? Or where can I flee from thy presence? If I ascend to heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there thy hand will lead me, and thy right hand will lay hold of me. Now, it is not that David here desires to escape from the presence of God, but he considers that what if he ever did revolt against his obedience to the Lord? And what if he was ever so foolish as to try to escape from him, would it even ever be possible? 
He thinks of the heavens, the vast heavens above. If I ascend into the heavens, you will be there. If I make my bed down in Sheol, if I dig a hole into the earth and hide myself down in the depths of the earth, you will still be there. If I take the wings of the dawn and the light as it arises over the horizon, if I go into the very depths and the remotest part of the sea, you will still be there, and thy hand will still lead me, and thy right hand will lay hold of me. And so it is a very great truth here that a man can never hide himself from God. No matter what he does, no matter where he goes, no matter how much he suppresses the knowledge of God in his own mind, he can never escape from the presence of God. God is omnipresent. He is omniscient. For us as believers, this is a comforting thought to us as Christians because God knows all of our anxious thoughts and he knows all our fears, all our cares, all the troubles of our souls and he calls us to cast them all upon him because he cares for us. So the omniscience of God knowing everything that takes place within us, it is a comfort to us that he knows all of our troubles. And then what about our sins? When we find our sins within us, he has given to us a savior as well in his beloved son Jesus. And we may run to him and be cleansed of all of our inward sins. He closes the psalm in verses 23 and 24, and he says this, verse 23, he says, Search me, O God, and know my heart, and try me and know my anxious thoughts, and see if there be any hurtful way in me, and lead me in the everlasting Way. So the Christian, the Christian does not seek to hide himself from God. He rather asks God, based on his omniscience, to come and search me and find out if there is any evil way that still lies in me. And when you discover that evil way, try me, know me, and lead me in the everlasting way. Cleanse me in the blood of Jesus and wash me afresh and give me strength by the power of the Holy Spirit and lead me in the everlasting way that leads to eternal life. So we do not fear as Christians to know the worst things that there are to be known about ourselves because we know that we have a Savior and we can confess our sins, all of our sins to him and we can find his mercy and he is able to cleanse us in the inward parts. And we want us and we want to do what is good and right. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me. Know my anxious thoughts and see if there is any hurtful way in me, any wrong and evil way within me. And lead me in the everlasting way. The omniscience of God is a comfort to a Christian. But the omniscience of God is a dreadful thing to an unbeliever.
because the unbeliever must realize that all of his sins, sins which he has kept secret from other men and sins which he has thought no one else has known, those sins are all open and laid bare before the eyes of God in heaven and he will bring him with his sins to judgment on the last day. If you are not a Christian here this morning, you should know that all of your secret sins and all the thoughts of your heart are known to God and he has marked them down in his book and there is a day of judgment that is coming and there will be no escape from the judgment of God. You will appear before him and give an account of all that you have done. But there is a way of safety for you. There is a way of peace. There is a way for you to be cleansed and washed and to be ready for that great day. And it is only by coming to his beloved son, Jesus, and confessing your sins and turning from them and finding him in the scriptures and in the word of God that you can be forgiven and ready for that day. There's one other passage we'll look at briefly in this regard. It's found in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 8. The book of Ezekiel, chapter 8. And here in chapter 8, We'll look beginning at verse 6. The Lord gave a vision to his prophet Ezekiel. And Ezekiel here is shown the idolatry that was taking place secretly in the house of the Lord. We'll look at verse 6. And he said to me, the Lord said to me, Son of man, do you see what they are doing, the great abominations which the house of Israel are committing here, that I should be far from my sanctuary? But yet you will see still greater abominations. Then he brought me to the entrance of the court, to the temple. And when I looked, behold, a a hole in the wall. And he said to me, Son of man, now dig dig through the wall. So I dug through the wall, and behold, an entrance. And he said to me, Go in and see the wicked abominations that they are committing here. So I entered and looked, and behold, every form of creeping things and beasts and detestable things with all the idols of the house of Israel were carved on the wall all around. And standing in front of them were 70 elders of the house of Israel with Jazaniah, the son of Shaphan, standing among them, each man with his censer in his hand and the fragrance of the cloud of incense rising. Then he said to me, Son of man, do you see what the elders of the house of Israel are committing in the dark, each man in the room of his carved images? For they say, The Lord does not see. The Lord has forsaken the land. What was taking place here in Israel and Jerusalem at this time was that the priests in the temple of God, they had forsaken God and his worship. They were worshiping idols. They were bringing their false incense of the gods of the surrounding nations. They were doing this in the secret chambers of the temple. 
and they would go into the back room, the back rooms of the temple where none of the people could see them, and they would turn all of the lights off, and in the darkness, they would practice their idolatry, and they thought that God would never see them. As they say at the end of verse 12, the Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. But he did see them because he knows all things. And he revealed it here to Ezekiel. He brings Ezekiel into this vision, shows him a hole in the wall, and then through the hole there is an entrance, a door, and then into the door he sees all the abominations that the priests are committing in the secret of the temple of God. Just like with the prophet Elijah, the Lord here revealed it to his prophet Ezekiel. How he revealed it to Elijah, we do not know. Whether it was through a vision, as it is here through Ezekiel, or in some other way. But both in the same way, the Lord, who is omniscient, revealed it to his prophet. We turn back to 2 Kings and chapter 6. Second Kings and chapter 6. And the problem here with Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, and the great problem with all unbelieving men and women is that they do not realize that God knows everything about them. Ben-Hadad here did not know the Lord knew everything taking place in his secret war council. The Lord was there and knew all of his plans, revealed them to the prophet Elijah. Elijah passed them on to the king of Israel. And it was a terrible shock every time he sent down his marauding bands that the nation of Israel, the army of Israel, was prepared for them. He did not know that the Lord knew all things a couple of lessons we learned from the passage here this morning. And the first is the foolishness of unbelief. The foolishness of unbelief. We see this in regard to Ben-Hadad, the king of Assyria. Of, of Assyria. At the end of verse 12, he's just been told that Elijah, God, Elisha through God, knows every plan that he makes. And Elijah is the one who frustrates his assaults every time he comes against Israel. And so what does Ben-Hadad do once he knows that all of this is taking place through Elijah and God knows all things? We read in verse 13 and 14. So he said, he said to his war council, he said, go and see where he is the prophet Elijah, that I may send and take him. And it was told him, saying, Behold, he is in Dothan. And he sent horses and chariots and a great army there. And they came that night and surrounded the city. So here is Ben-Hadad. He comes up with this new idea that if Elijah is the one 
who is frustrating his success, he will capture Elijah. That's what he will do. He will go after Elijah. He will send out some spies to find out where Elijah is. And the spies come back and they tell Ben-Hadad that Elijah is in the city of Dothan. So Ben-Hadad now, he sends this massive force, this great army down into Israel to capture him. Not just a small band of soldiers like he had done before, but a great army he sends. We read horses and chariots and a great army. And Ben-Hadad makes sure now that they come at night. They must be sent at night because he thinks that if they come at night, then they will be kept secret and no one will know. And they will surround the city and they will capture the prophet Elijah who has been frustrating all of his plans. How foolish, how foolish can Ben-Hadad possibly be? He has just been told that Elijah knows all of his plans. Does he not realize that Elijah knows this plan as well? He cannot hide anything in his secret war council. Does he think that he can hide this massive army that he sends down now to Israel? He has seen that the God of Israel has power to reveal all things to Elijah. Does he not think that the same God has the power to defeat his army? It is utter foolishness and madness of unbelief that we see here in Ben-Hadad. Ben-Hadad acts as a man who is completely unaware of who he is dealing with. And he sends his army straight into a great disaster. The truth is that even after all that Ben-Hadad has been told, he did not really even then believe that God knew the plans. If he did, he would not have acted in this way. He is like unbelievers in the book of Psalms that we read of on different occasions where they say that the Lord does not see, like in Ezekiel's prophecy, nor does the God of Jacob understand. How does God know, and is there any knowledge with the Most High? That's the great lie of the present world that we live in, the great lie of this present world that men are filled with every day is that the God of heaven is not really there. He is not real. We do not need to think of him. We do not need to deal with him. We may do whatever we please to do. And he will not hold us to account in the end. That's the great lie that permeates the air of this present world. And it was the lie that had filled the mind of Ben-Hadad as well. So we see the foolishness of the unbelief of Ben-Hadad. We also see the foolishness of the unbelief of the king of Israel, Jehoram, at the same time. Because Jehoram cared only about earthly dangers and he cared nothing about eternal dangers. 
Jehoram, in the previous chapters, we learn of him that he was an evil and unbelieving king. We find him in other passages that he hated the prophet Elisha. He would try to put Elisha to death. He would not listen to the word of the Lord that came through Elisha. And Elisha has warned Jehoram of the dangers of sin and God's judgment that is coming and eternity. And yet Jehoram would pay no attention to the words of Elisha. And here in this passage, here in this passage, what we find is that every time Elisha came to him, and warned him about the dangers of the Syrian army, the dangers of this life. Then Jehoram took heed, and he quickly acted, and sent out his army for his own defense. He cared only about earthly dangers. He cared nothing about spiritual and eternal dangers. And that's the way it is. With unbelieving men and women in this world, they will do almost anything to save themselves from the dangers of this life, but they care nothing about the dangers of the world to come. They do everything to protect their money and their wealth. They guard their property, their homes, their cars. They guard it with their lives. They spend thousands of hours studying the stock market to know how they can protect their portfolio. They do everything they can to ensure their earthly possessions are safe, but they pay no attention to the realities of sin and judgment and the world to come. When people become sick, mortally sick in the hospital, they will do anything to save their lives and preserve their life in this world, but they will not even pick up a Bible to find out what lies ahead when they ultimately die and judgment of God comes upon them. Sometimes I have business down at the bank And one of the things that's most astonishing is to sit in the bank and wait for the next person to bank counselor to be available. And what I see so often is, very often, little old ladies sitting with the bank counselor talking about their money in their accounts. They're on the brink of death. They're on the brink of eternal disaster, and all they care about is the amount of money that they have left in their accounts. It is the terrible blindness of unbelief, and that's what's taking place here with Jehoram. Jesus said, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and he loses his soul? The foolishness of unbelief. Men care about earthly dangers, but they care nothing about eternal dangers. Then the last lesson we learn from the passage this morning is that God will defeat every plan of evil against his kingdom. That's what's taking place here. In the larger context, this is the kingdom of darkness against the kingdom of heaven. Ben-Hadad and the Assyrians are the kingdom of darkness. 
Israel is the kingdom of God. And every time the Syrians attack God's kingdom, God frustrates their plans. He overturns their schemes and he brings it all to an end. And we see this in the rest of the passage. Lord willing, we'll look at it more closely tonight when the Syrian army comes down and encircles Dothan. Elijah comes out, he blinds them so they cannot see the Syrian, the Syrian army. He takes them captive into the, sit, the city of Samaria. Then he opens their eyes, they see where they are, they think they're about to be killed. But Elijah feeds them and sends them back to Ben-Hadad. The Syrians were completely humiliated. They sent an entire army to capture one man, Elijah. And the one man, Elijah, takes them captive, the entire army, and sends them back to Ben-Hadad. And they realize that all their efforts against Israel and the kingdom of God to defeat his kingdom, it cannot stand in the end. And it all comes to nothing. When we read of the secret war council of Ben-Hadad and his men and all the defeats that follow, we're reminded of Psalm 2 where David said, The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take their counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. But he who sits in the heavens laughs, and the Lord scoffs at them. And he has a thousand ways to defeat them and bring all of their evil plans against his kingdom to an end. Psalm 64 speaks of much the same thing. God throwing over, overthrowing the plans of the wicked. Psalm 64, they hold fast to themselves an evil purpose. They talk of laying snares secretly. They say, who can see them? They devise injustices, saying, we are ready with a well-conceived plot. But God will shoot at them with an arrow. Suddenly they will be wounded. Then all men will fear and declare the work of God and will consider what he has done. So this is the way it has always been, and this is the way it still is today, that men in high places, rulers and kings, They devise their schemes and their secret plans against the Lord and against his anointed and his people. In colleges and universities, in government offices, in corporate boardrooms of the companies, the secret plans and the devices to harm Christians And the church of Jesus, it continues to the present day. But here we learn that all their plans will come to an end. God will have the victory and his kingdom will continue. There's the story of a French philosopher. His name was Voltaire in the 1700s. He was a man who hated Christianity. He despised the Bible and he predicted And he desired that the time would come when no one would ever read the Bible again. And the Bible would be banished and Christianity would come to an end in the world because in his mind it was foolishness. 
But then after Voltaire died, the very house where he lived became a printing house for Bibles, as if the God of heaven was laughing at Voltaire. Voltaire is gone, but Christianity continues, and Christ is still upon his mighty throne of sovereignty and power and wisdom, and he is able to bring every evil plan to an end, and he will do so in the end of this world. He has an everlasting kingdom, and his kingdom will come, will never come to an end. The vanity of this world is seen. The greatest vanity of the world is to fight against God. The only way of wisdom and the only way of safety and the only way of peace and victory for us is to come to Jesus and to confess all of our sins and all of our willful ways, secret sins, public sins, whatever sins they may be, because Jesus is the Savior of sinners and he is always willing to save sinners. Whoever comes to him, he will wash them and cleanse them and make them right with God in heaven. There is still hope for us. The day of judgment has not come. This is still the day of mercy And the way of salvation is still open. And all who will turn from their sins and come to Jesus will be welcomed and will find forgiveness and eternal life in him. May it be so with each of us here today. Let's pray together. Father and gracious God in heaven, thank you for the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ that there is hope for us, even for us who are such great sinners, that with all of our sins, even the secret unknown sins of our hearts, we may still be washed and cleansed in the blood of Jesus. O Lord, thank you that we may come to you at all times, and every one of us here this morning may come to you as the Savior, and you do call us to come unto you, all who are weary, and heavy laden. May you work in us by your word and by your Holy Spirit, and may we turn to you and love you and walk with you with all our hearts. Have mercy upon us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.